I'll ask you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. That will be the sermon text for today, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 26. I will read a series of passages from the book of Isaiah. I would encourage you just to listen to these being read. I'll move from one passage to the next rather quickly. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, 27, 6. 32, 14 through 17, and 44, 2 through 4. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Here the prophet is speaking concerning the coming Messiah, the prophet who lived long before the Christ was ever born. There shall come forth a shoot... From the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah 27, 6 In days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom, and put forth shoots, and fill the whole world with fruit. Isaiah 32, 14. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured out Upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Isaiah 44, 2. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Let us go now to the New Testament to Galatians 5, and read verses 16 through 26. This is Paul writing to the churches of Galatia, Christians living under the new covenant. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, 
idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. The sermon today is about the Holy Spirit's work in building God's temple church. If I were to come to you later and ask you the question, what was the sermon about? And our young people know that that question will most likely be asked of them by someone, either their parents or one of their pastors. The right answer would go something like this. The sermon was about the Holy Spirit's work in building God's temple church and in making it fruitful. And if I were to ask you what the main points of the sermon were, you should say, one, God the Father creates His temple church through the Word and by the Spirit. Two, it is the Spirit who indwells or fills God's temple church. And three, It is the Spirit who makes God's temple church fruitful. Now, I've presented these points to you here in the introduction of the sermon for the sake of clarity. We'll soon return to them. But before we do, I would like to connect a few biblical dots. Or perhaps another way to say this is, I would like to trace out a very important biblical theme. Recognizing this biblical theme and tracing its development from Genesis to Revelation will help us to better appreciate the role that the Holy Spirit plays in building God's temple church. Recognizing this theme will also help us to better understand Paul's famous fruit of the Spirit passage, which we have just read. The theme is this, God the Father works through the Son, or Word, and by the Spirit to produce life in us that is abundant and fruitful. As you know, there is only one true God, and God is one. This truth is summed up in the famous words of Moses found in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, in other words, listen up, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one true God, And He is one. He is simple. He is not made up of parts like we are. All that is in God is in God, is God, rather. And yet the scriptures also reveal that the one true God is triune. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences or persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore, but one God, 
who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. That is Second London Confession, chapter 2, paragraph 3. It's a mouthful, and I know it's an earful. If you were present in the Sunday school class that we offered on the Trinity not long ago, these words and concepts would sound familiar to you. If not, they might sound a bit perplexing. But the simple point is this. God is one, and God is triune. There is one divine nature, not many. And within one God, within the one God, there are three persons or subsistences, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, eternally, begets the Son, or Word. Theologians call this filiation. And the Father and the Son eternally breathe forth the Spirit. Theologians call this spiration. And yet all three persons, or subsistences, are fully God. Here we are talking about the eternal God. This is what God is like. This is what He is for all eternity. Now, with the doctrine of the Trinity having been very rapidly stated, here is what I would like you to see. These eternal relations between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which I have just mentioned, are displayed or revealed to us in time in God's work of creation and redemption. Here is what I mean. God the Father created all things through the Word and by the Spirit. God the Father created all things through the Word and by the Spirit. And God the Father sustains and upholds His creation through the Word and by the Spirit. And not only this, God the Father has accomplished our redemption and applies it to His elect through the Word, or Son, and by the Spirit. So then, the works that God has done in creation and in redemption correspond to or match what God is eternally. The Father begets the Son, and the Father and Son breathe forth the Spirit. This is the eternal God, and I am saying that the works of God in creation and redemption match this pattern. The Father creates and redeems through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember what the very first verses of the Bible reveal to us in the beginning? God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. The rest of the Bible confirms and clarifies that it was the triune God who created the heavens and the earth. The Father created through the Word. He spoke, remember? He spoke. He created through the Word, or Son, and by the Holy Spirit. It was the triune God who created the heavens and earth in the beginning, and it was the triune God who made the earth into a fruitful place suitable for human habitation. God the Father created all things through the Word or Son and by the Spirit, and He caused the earth to be fruitful. He planted a garden and filled it with fruit trees of every kind. The garden was a place for Adam and Eve to dwell in His presence. The garden was a temple And there the man and the woman were commanded to be fruitful themselves. They were to be fruitful physically. They were to tend to and keep the garden and expand its borders. They were to bear children and fill the earth. And they were to be fruitful spiritually speaking too. They were to bear the fruit of righteous obedience unto the Lord 
They were to offer up to Him reverential worship. Can you see all of this? Can you picture it in your, in your mind's eye? The triune God is the source of all life. The triune God is the fountain of all life. In the beginning the Father created all things seen and unseen through the Son or Word and by the Spirit. And life was good. It was very good. It was fruitful. It was blessed. Now we know that paradise was lost by Adam's fall into sin. When man fell from his upright state, the blessed fruitfulness of God's original creation was lost too. Considered from a physical perspective, the ground no longer produced fruit with vitality. It produced thorns and thistles. Man's work became toilsome. Childbirth became difficult. Physical death entered as the destiny of every man. When Adam sinned, the world that was brought into existence by the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit passed from a state marked by abundant life and blessedness into a cursed state of sin and death. And considered from a spiritual's perspective, man no longer produced the fruit of heartfelt obedience and reverential worship unto God. Instead, apart from the saving grace of God, man in his fallen and sinful condition produced the fruit of unrighteousness, of sin, and of rebellion. What does the life of man produce now that he has fallen? Well, Paul tells us in the Galatians 5 passage we read earlier, saying, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are the kinds of sinful things that fallen men and women do. It is what our flesh, that is to say our fallen and sinful flesh, produces now that we are alienated from God, fallen, and in sin. I want you to think of the narrative of Genesis chapters 3 through 11 and all of the wickedness, all of the division, all of the violence and corruption that is described there leading up ultimately to that great flood. Think also of the whole course of human history, what you know of it. It is marked by idolatry, sin, and rebellion against God. Humanity is marked by division, violence, oppression, and perversion among, among mankind. Look around you even now. And consider the fruit that is produced by those living according to the flesh. It is not the, the fruit of righteous obedience to God. It, it is the fruit of sin and wickedness and every vile thing. Brothers and sisters, when Adam sinned, it was not simply an individual who sinned. Adam was the representative of humanity. When Adam sinned, humanity sinned in him. Humanity was plunged into an estate of sin. Now what does our flesh, that is to say our fallen and unregenerated flesh, produce? Not righteous fruit, but unrighteous fruit. Not obedience unto God, but rebellion. Not life, but death. The good news is that God our Creator is now also God our Redeemer. Shortly after man's fall into sin, the Lord promised to provide salvation through the offspring of the woman. With the passing of time, it became clear through Subsequent revelation that this offspring of Eve would be Emmanuel, that is to say God with us. The Messiah or Christ would be the God-man. He would be the eternal Son or Word of God come in the flesh. And in His humanity, He would be anointed with the Holy Spirit. 
beyond measure, so as to produce the fruit of righteousness himself. Did you hear this? The Messiah would be the eternal Son of God come in the flesh. In his humanity, he would be anointed by the Holy Spirit beyond measure, enabling him to produce the fruit of human righteousness on our behalf. In other words, God the Father would accomplish our salvation through the eternal Son and by the eternal Spirit. Our salvation is a triune act. It is the act of the triune God. The Father has accomplished our salvation through the eternal Word or Son and by the eternal Spirit. Just as the original creation was an act of the triune God, so too the accomplishment of our salvation was an act of the triune God. In fact, when the Son accomplished our salvation in obedience to the Father and by the working of the Spirit, He did not only earn salvation for individuals like you and me, He also ushered in a new creation. The first creation has been ruined by sin. Through Jesus Christ, the triune God will establish a new creation. And if you wish to have a glimpse at what that new creation will be like, you may go to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. There it is symbolized. It is portrayed as a consummated garden of Eden. In Revelation 22, 1 through 5, John says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. I hope that you can see the Eden language that is used here in this passage, just as the river of life flowed from the mountain of Eden down and watered the whole earth as it divided into four rivers. So too, we see this vision of the new heavens and new earth or the new creation, and it is portrayed to us in the terms of Eden. There's a river of life flowing, notice, from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and it is bringing water to the whole city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, there it is, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So then, the new creation, when it is consummated, will be fruitful. The creation itself will produce abundant fruit. And all who are there will produce the fruit of righteousness to the glory of God. They will no longer produce the fruit of wickedness. They will produce the fruit of righteousness to the glory of God. No longer will there be anything accursed, the text says. Only the servants of God will be there and they will worship Him. And so I ask you, brothers and sisters, don't you long for this day? Aren't you eager to see it come when the creation will be so thoroughly renewed? The creation will be fruitful once more and we will offer up to our God and King the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of heartfelt worship and adoration. But just a moment ago I said, when the Son accomplished our salvation... He did not only earn salvation for individuals like you and me, He also ushered in a new creation. And when did this happen? When did the Son accomplish our salvation? He accomplished it in the past. 
He accomplished it in His incarnation when He lived and died and rose again for sinners. The new creation that is described to us in Revelation 21 and 22 is clearly not yet here in its fullness, but it is already here in part. To use terms that you have heard many times before, the new creation has been inaugurated. It has begun. It has broken through into human history. We await its consummation. Now this can be demonstrated from the scriptures in in many ways. We could demonstrate the presence of the new creation using the terms of kingdom. God's new creation kingdom is here now, but it is not yet here in its fullness. We could also use the theme of temple. God's new creation temple is here now. It is present. You are the temple of the living God, brothers and sisters. But it is not yet here in fullness. We could also speak in terms of regeneration, as Paul does in 2 Corinthians 5.17, saying, listen carefully, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, the new creation is here now. The new creation is present now. And where is it found? It is found in Christ's church, which is the inauguration of God's eternal kingdom. It is the inauguration of Christ's, of God's eternal temple. The church is the inauguration or beginning of God's new creation because the Father and Son have poured out the Spirit on the church. The Spirit convicts and calls sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. The Spirit regenerates sinners to make them willing and able to believe. The Spirit also fills and empowers believers to sanctify them so that they might produce the fruit of righteousness. God the Father accomplished our salvation through Christ the Son. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure in His humanity. And Christ the Son, having finished the work the Father gave Him to do, having lived a righteous life, having suffered and died in the place of sinners, having been raised in victory, what did He do then? He ascended to the Father's right hand. And once He ascended and sat down at the Father's right hand, who did He send? He sent forth the Holy Spirit to apply the salvation He had earned to His elect. I want you to think of the events of the day of Pentecost as described in Acts 2. Think of the signs that were displayed in the early church in connection with the ministry of the apostles. Signs such as the ability to speak in tongues, that is to say in other known languages. The ability to heal and to prophesy. These were signs or proofs that the Spirit of God had been poured out by Christ from on high, not upon the Jews only, but upon people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Jesus said that He would do this. In John 16, 7-11, we find the words of Christ. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. He is speaking to His disciples. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Helper of whom Christ speaks here is the Holy Spirit 
the third person of the eternal and triune God. Just as the Father and Son have breathed forth the Spirit for all eternity, so too the Father and Son send forth the Spirit in the accomplishment of our redemption. All of this was prophesied long before Jesus was ever born. At the beginning of this sermon, I read a series of passages from Isaiah. And taken together, the prophet spoke of the coming Messiah as a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That is to say, he will be a descendant of King David. He would be a branch that would arise from his roots. And this Messiah would bear fruit, according to Isaiah the prophet. He would be fruitful. The Messiah would be anointed with the Holy Spirit, and the Messiah would also pour out the Holy Spirit upon His new covenant people to make them fruitful. And this He has done. The Spirit was poured out upon the apostles of Christ on the day of Pentecost. Tongues of fire rested upon them as a visible sign. And the apostles spoke in tongues, not in some angelic and unknown language, but in the tongues of the people of the earth who had gathered in Jerusalem to worship. They heard the gospel proclaimed in their own language, and many of them believed. As the gospel went forth, and as Jews and Gentiles believed, the gift of tongues was given also to some of them to show that the new covenant era, that is to say, the era of which the prophet spoke, was here. It had arrived. I should also cite Joel 2. In verse 28, the Lord speaks through the prophet Joel, saying, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. What days are these of which Joel speaks except For the days of the Messiah, the days in which the new covenant is inaugurated. Ezekiel 36 should also be mentioned. The Lord spoke through the prophet Ezekiel concerning the coming new covenant saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The prophets here, Isaiah, Joel, and Ezekiel, are speaking of the coming new covenant and what will mark the coming of this new covenant except the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God upon all flesh, that is to say, upon all nations. And if you wish to see that these prophecies were fulfilled, at least in part, at Christ's first coming and on the day of Pentecost, then simply read Peter's speech, which he delivered on the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts 2. In that sermon, Peter cites or alludes to the passages we have just read from Isaiah, Joel, and Ezekiel. And his message is this the days of which the, the days of which these prophets have, have spoken. They have come. They are here now. The new covenant is here. The new creation is here. The Holy Spirit of God has been poured out from on high. And you you see evidence of it right before you. 
as these men who are all Jews are speaking in the tongues of the nations who had assembled uh, to Jerusalem for worship. So the point is this. After Christ accomplished our salvation, He ascended to the Father's right hand, and He sent forth the Spirit. The pouring out of the Spirit of God upon the new covenant people of God marked the beginning of the new covenant, and it marked the beginning of the new creation. All of this was promised long beforehand through the prophets, and it was also prefigured in the Exodus event, which we have recently considered. After God redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage by His word, He sent the Spirit. It was the Spirit that led Israel in the wilderness in the glory cloud, and the Spirit filled the tabernacle once it was constructed according to God's word. When Christ sent forth the Spirit from on high, it was in fulfillment of these promises, prophecies, and types. And please hear me. Not only was the Spirit sent to convict the world concerning sin, to renew His people and to cleanse them from their sin, but also to make them fruitful. The Spirit was sent to make God's people fruitful. The Spirit produces life, brothers and sisters. The Spirit produced life at the time of creation. The Spirit produces life in the new creation and in our redemption. The Spirit produces abundant life. The Spirit produces abundant life. It is the Spirit who gives life to God's elect, and it is the Spirit who produces fruit in them and through them. Now, I hope you can see why I wanted to trace this biblical theme before talking about the Spirit's work in building God's temple church and in producing fruit within God's people. I think recognizing this theme and its development from Genesis through to the end of Revelation, will help us to understand and more fully appreciate what the writers of the New Testament Scriptures mean when they say things like this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Understanding this theme and its development from Genesis to Revelation, will help us to better understand and appreciate statements like this that we find in the New Testament. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speak to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, Acts 2.4. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Or how about this statement? But I say to you, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 And But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That is Galatians 5.22-26. All of these references to the outpouring, indwelling, and fruitfulness of the Holy Spirit 
and the lives of the new covenant people of God must be interpreted in light of the totality of the scriptures. Genesis through Revelation, um, and also in the light of the progress of the history of, of redemption. When the Messiah came and accomplished our redemption, He ushered in the new creation by sending forth the Holy Spirit. Just as the original creation was brought into existence by the Father through the Son and Spirit, so it is with the new creation. The new creation is the work of the triune God. The Father sent the Son to accomplish our salvation. The Father and Son sent the Spirit to apply it to the elect of God and to make them fruitful. So let us now go to the three points of the sermon, which have already been stated. And as we consider these three points... We will also consider the Galatians 5 passage and the fruit of the Spirit that are mentioned there. It won't take long, actually. These three points are intended to to now bring more clarity and sharpness to the things that have already been said. First, I want you to see clearly that it is God the Father who creates or builds His temple church, and this He does through the Word and by the Spirit. Who are the stones of God's eternal temple? They are those who believe in Christ, who is the Word of God incarnate. And we know that those who believe in Christ believe because God has chosen them. They are called elect. They are said to have been predestined. They are those written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And how do these come to believe in Christ? It is through the preaching of the Word of God As the Spirit works, as the gospel is preached at just the right time, the Spirit works upon the elect of God to make them willing and able to believe. The Spirit convicts the elect concerning their sin. The Spirit calls the elect inwardly and effectively. He regenerates them to make them willing and able to believe. We call this effectual calling. Our catechism is right to say that effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. How do we come to be saved? How do we come to be set as stones in God's eternal temple? It is by believing upon Christ. And how are we able to believe upon Christ? It is through the preaching of the Word of God and by the working of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit draws sinners to faith and to repentance. And so I say, it is God the Father who creates or builds His temple church. And this He does through the Word, that is to say, through Christ, the eternal Son of God incarnate, and by the working of the Holy Spirit. Two, it is the Spirit who indwells or fills God's temple church. It is the Spirit who indwells or fills God's temple church. Not only does the Spirit convict the elect and draw them effectually, not only does the Spirit regenerate His elect so that they might willingly believe upon Christ, the Spirit also indwells or fills God's temple church. And this may be considered in two ways, individually and corporately. Individually, all who are drawn to faith in Christ 
through the preaching of the gospel and by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, are filled with the Spirit. This is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. He speaks to the individual believer there when he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Here in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is referring to the individual believer when he says, You are the temple of God. God's Spirit is in you. All who believe in Christ receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, or to use the language of Jesus, all who believe in Christ to the salvation of their souls receive the promised helper. Yes, in the days of the apostles, this gift of the Spirit, of which we are now speaking, was sometimes marked by having the ability to speak in tongues. That is to say, to speak in a known language that was not known to the speaker previously. The gift of tongues, like the gift of healing, functioned as a sign that the new covenant and the new creation of which the prophet spoke had arrived. The Messiah had come, He had finished His work, and He had poured out the Spirit on all flesh. That is to say, not on the Jews only, but on all who believed upon Christ from every tongue, tribe, and nation. These miraculous gifts that we hear about in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians were signs that the age of the Spirit of which the prophet spoke had arrived. Think of this. Moses performed miracles. Do you remember those miracles that Moses performed? He was a miracle worker By God's power, he performed miracles. Do not forget about the ten plagues which the Israelites were, by which the Israelites were redeemed. And do not forget about the miraculous things experienced by the people of God as they journeyed into the wilderness. Moses was a miracle worker. He struck the rock and water gushed forth. God provided manna from heaven for Israel. Through him, the bitter waters of Marah were made sweet, etc. These were signs that God was with. Moses, that he was the mediator of the old covenant which God was in those days establishing. Miraculous signs, brothers and sisters, were not the norm under the old covenant. They were the exception. They were concentrated to the time of the beginning or the inauguration of the old covenant in order to show that this work was being done by God Almighty, that Moses was God's man, that a new covenantal relationship was being in those days established. The miraculous things done in those days were not to be expected as the norm. They were exceptions. They were exceptional times. They were exceptional things being done to function as a sign that God was doing something having to do with the accomplishment of our redemption. Do you see it? And so it is with the new covenant. Christ performed miracles. Why did He perform them? They functioned as signs to show that He was the Messiah, the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh. Christ's apostles also performed miracles. And there were miraculous things happening in the days of the apostles. As the the gospel began to spread to all nations, Jews and Gentiles would speak in tongues as a sign that they had received the promised Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit promised from long ago. 
The fact that they spoke in tongues, that is the tongues of other nationalities, that is what the tongues are as described in the New Testament. Not some angelic language that's unknown. These are the ability to speak in the tongues of the nations clearly according to the New Testament. And this corresponds to the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the new covenant was not for the Jews only. Not for only the Jews, not for the Hebrew speakers only, but for all nations. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so the Holy Spirit has poured out this miraculous ability to speak in the tongues of nations is given and the gospel begins to spread immediately to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, here is my point now. It is not only those who spoke in tongues in the days of the early church who received the Spirit. Instead, some spoke in tongues, and this functioned as a sign that the Holy Spirit had been poured out by the Messiah, just as Isaiah, Joel, and Ezekiel said would happen. The new covenant had come. The new creation had broken in, and the gift of tongues was a sign of it. The gift of tongues was given to some, not all had this gift in the earliest days of the church, as as a sign that the new covenant, the new creation, and the age of the Spirit had arrived. Just as Joshua and many others who led Israel after the days of Moses did not have the ability to work miracles in the ways that Moses did when the Old Covenant was being founded, neither do those who live under the New Covenant after the age of the apostles have the ability to heal, to prophesy, nor to speak in tongues. These were signs that marked the dawning of a new age, the age of the Spirit of which the prophets of old spoke. It has arrived. The point that I want you to see is this. All who are made alive by the Spirit and drawn to faith in Christ are also Spirit-filled. Their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, for they have been bought with a price. This truth that the Spirit indwells or fills God's temple church may be considered In an individual sense, it may also be considered in a corporate sense. Brothers and sisters, you individually are spirit-filled stones in God's temple, and we together are the spirit-filled temple of God. Just as the glory of God filled the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and later temple after these structures were constructed, so too the Spirit fills the temple church. When the church assembles... In Jesus' name, the Spirit is with us to bless us through the means of grace in worship. And clearly, Paul speaks in this corporate sense in 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17, saying, Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple, then that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, here referring to the church, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you, plural, are that temple. This truth that the Spirit indwells all of God's elect, that is to say, all whom He draws to faith in Christ, should make us realize that in Christ we do not only have our sins forgiven, we do have that, but no, in Christ we are also being sanctified and empowered to live a godly life in the service of our Lord. Why else would the Helper be sent to us? Why else would we be indwelt with the Holy Spirit if it were not for this purpose, to be further sanctified, to be further empowered in order to live a life of obedience before our God and our Savior?
the third and final point of the sermon is this. It is the Spirit who makes God's temple church fruitful. In the Galatians 5 passage that was read earlier, Paul contrasts the fruit of the Spirit with the works of sinful flesh. What does our sinful and fallen flesh produce? What is the manner of life or characteristics that emerge from our fallen and sinful nature? Well, things like these, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, things like these are produced by the fallen and sinful flesh. These are the characteristics that mark the lives of those who are unbelieving and unregenerated. But in contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the Qualities or characteristics that are going to mark the lives of those who have been spirit-filled. These are the qualities or characteristics that are going to mark the lives of those who have faith in Christ, who have been given new life by the Spirit, who've been regenerated, who've been washed, who've been renewed, who have been filled with the Holy Spirit. They will produce these things and not the former things that have been mentioned. Now, I want you to notice a few things about the fruit of the Spirit. One, notice that they are called fruit. In other words, these are the qualities or characteristics that a person produces. That is what is meant by fruit here. It is a metaphor. Just as a tree, an apple tree is going to produce apple fruit, a peach tree is going to produce peach fruit, uh, so too we as human beings are going to produce a certain kind of fruit and it is going to depend upon what kind of of person we are to the core. These are called fruit. Two, they are called the fruit of the Spirit. They are the fruit of the Spirit. This means that these are the qualities or characteristics that the Spirit will produce in those He has regenerated and indwells. Stated differently, these qualities are not presented to us as law. The text here in Galatians 5 does not command Christians to strive to love, to be joyful, to be at peace, and to be a peacemaker, to have patience, to be kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. No doubt we ought to pursue these qualities. And other passages of Scripture do command us to pursue these qualities. In fact, the command to be holy as God is holy is holy, is a command to pursue all of these qualities that have been mentioned. But here, Paul refers to these qualities as the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, if these qualities are to be ours in an authentic and consistent way, then they are qualities that the Spirit of God must produce within us. These qualities, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control can be faked. Did you know that? They can be faked. And indeed, 
many do pretend to have them when it is beneficial for them, you see. Perhaps out in public, we can pretend for a time to have these qualities. They can be faked. But if these qualities are to be ours really, truly, and sincerely from the heart, then they must be produced by the Spirit through His work of regeneration and through His work of sanctification. The Spirit must give us new life. The Spirit must renew our minds. The Spirit must move us and help us to live, not according to our old way of life, that is to say, according to the flesh, but according to our new life in Christ Jesus. So, these qualities are called the fruit of the Spirit. They are the the qualities that the Spirit produces in those He indwells. Three, the first of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned is love. We are not going to go through each one of them individually. Uh, They are rather simple, in fact. You you can see the meaning of them on on the face of, of the words here. But I want you to notice that the first of the fruit of the Spirit is love. Indeed, if we have true love in our hearts for God and true love in our hearts for our fellow man, then the other fruit that are here mentioned in this passage will flow. We will also have joy. We will be at peace and we will be peacemakers. We will be patient. We will be kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. Love is the greatest of all of these gifts. It is put in the first place and it is the first fruit that God produces within us. The Spirit of God works within us a love for God that we did not have previously. And having regenerated us, He works within us a love for our fellow man and a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ that we did not have before. This is why John in his epistle says that the world is going to know us by our love. The world is going to see that we know God and that we belong to Him, that we have faith in Christ because of the love that is present. This is the first thing that the Spirit produces within us, love, and then begins to add to us all of these other qualities. For, though it is true that these are the fruit that the Spirit must produce in us, this does not mean that we are to sit idly by. If we wish to see these fruit produced in us, then we must sink our roots down deep into Christ to build upon the metaphor of the tree and the fruit. We must sink our roots down deep into Christ. We must abide in Him. We must partake of the means of grace that God has provided for us. These means of grace that God has given to His people are like streams of water to the soul. They are these, the Word of God read and preached, prayer, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. So if we wish to see these fruit of the Spirit produced in us, then we must send our roots out to drink from these streams of God's grace that He has, been, that he has made available for us. And you will notice that these ordinary means of grace that I have just mentioned are not primarily private, but corporate. They are delivered in a corporate setting. In private too, some of them, we do read the Scriptures privately. We do pray in private. But we do not partake of the Lord's Supper in private, do we? Nor do we baptize in private. No, these means of grace that I have just mentioned, the Word of God read and preached, prayer, baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, these things are first corporate. And so, abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit, 
is first and foremost a corporate thing. You all together are God's temple, are you not? We together are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we must partake of these means of grace within the context of the Christian church. The New Testament is so very clear about this. There is no Christian life. There is no abiding in Christ apart from the church, ordinarily speaking. When Paul says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. He is commanding that we live a life of dependence on the Holy Spirit. And that we draw strength from Him. Privately, yes. But especially as we partake of the means of grace that He has provided for His church. Did you hear what Paul said again? If we live by the Spirit, in other words, if you have been made alive spiritually... By the Holy Spirit of God. If you have been convicted of sin, drawn to faith in Christ, regenerated, if you, if you, if you live by the Spirit, then you are to also keep in step with the Spirit. You're to walk in the Spirit as well. You're to abide in Him. You're to abide in Christ. You're to sink your roots down deep into Christ and the Holy Spirit that He has sent. Five. Though it is true that these fruit of the Spirit are qualities that the Spirit must produce in us, this does not do away with the need for self-control or discipline. In fact, you will notice that self-control is the last of the fruit of the Spirit that is mentioned. Isn't that interesting? These are called fruit of the Spirit. These are qualities that the Spirit produces within us. But what is at the end of the list except this? The Spirit produces this quality within us, the ability to be self-controlled. To have self-control is to have complete control over your desires and your actions. Let that sink in for just a moment. To have self-control is to have complete control over your desires and your actions. One who lacks self-control has a lot in common, I think, with an animal being driven constantly by appetites, you see. But one who has self-control has the ability to, to control one's inward thoughts, one's inward desires, one's actions, to bring them into conformity to the Word of God, and to the law of God. The last of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned is self-control. Yes, these are qualities that the Spirit will produce within us, but He will produce them within us in such a way that He enables us to freely choose obedience to God. How does this work exactly? Well, in our sinful and unregenerate state, we are in fact not free But we are slaves to our sinful desires. In our sinful and unregenerate state, we produce what Paul calls the works of the flesh because our desires are evil. But through regeneration and sanctification, the Spirit enables us more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. That is Baptist Catechism 38 defining sanctification here. This teaching concerning the fruit of the Spirit does not do away with the need to exercise self-control. No, instead, by the working of the Spirit in us to give us new life and to sanctify us further, and through our constant dependence on Him, we are in fact set free from bondage to sin and empowered by the Spirit of the living God to live a life 
of self-control, in obedience to God, to the glory of His name. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus, it is because the Spirit has made you alive. And if you are in Christ Jesus, the Spirit indwells you. The Spirit has set you free. And the Spirit will produce these glorious fruit in you. May the Lord help us in these things. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that we individually and as a congregation would be marked by joy, by peace, by patience. I pray that we would be marked by kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Above all else, O God, I pray that we would be marked by love. I pray, O Lord, that you would work within our hearts a true and sincere love for you, O God, and a true and sincere love for one another. I pray, O God, that you would sanctify us further so that we may be holy as you are holy. God, I thank you for your church, the church that you are building. I thank you that you, Father, are building this church through the Son and by the Spirit. I thank you that in the church there is a foretaste of the new creation. We long for the return of Christ. We long for the new heavens and earth. We long for that fruitful place where we will experience life to the fullest. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Until then, help us to abide in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.